How you guys doing, really? Uh, my name's Eric. Welcome to E3. Uh, it's one of these great times in, uh, when you have a family that, like everybody in the house, gets sick, you know? So uh, my voice is a little, well, not, well, more than a little thrashed, so forgive me if I get a little raspy. Um, I do a lot of reading on a lot of, a lot of different things. I constantly go into the library and, 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 and whatnot. Um, and I've been reading a little bit here and there lately about architecture. And, and there's something very interesting about how a designer, how an architect will craft a space. And particularly how an architect or a designer will, will craft a, a space that they want to be inspiring. A space that they want to sort of like take somebody's breath away. You see what they'll do or what they won't do is just build an amazing room, put a door on it, and then have you walk through the door into an amazing room. It doesn't really work that way at all. It, it, it's kind of interesting. That the, the phrase that keeps lingering in my head is, is they build a space before the space. And what, what I mean by that is that when a, when a designer wants to create an experience that, that is amazing and that takes your breath away, they will craft an experience before you get into the room, sometimes of the exact opposite, to heighten the contrast of, of before the room, before the space, and then as the space kind of unfolds itself and reveals itself to you. One of the uh, seminal architects in, in American architecture is a guy named Frank Lloyd Wright, and he built uh, a lot of just residential homes in the Midwest. And they say that, that when you walk into a, a Frank Lloyd Wright home, that the experience of approaching the front door is, is actually pretty weird. Like it's very confining. Like you feel walls kind of push in on you. You feel like the, the entryways might be low. You know, so you feel like, oh my gosh, everything just feels like it's closing in on me, like it's, like it's pushing in on me. But then when you walk into the front door, of a Frank Lloyd Wright home. There's this feeling of like you come into this, this amazing uh, grand entryway and there's this feeling of like, oh, I, I've arrived now. I've arrived now. And it's all about contrast before and then inside. And, and I would like to suggest to you that, that that's the, what we are trying to create with this series called Anticipate. Because a lot of us, uh, Christmas season looks like this. Uh, Thanksgiving, Black Friday, shopping, 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 shopping. Christmas Eve, woohoo, Christmas Day, woohoo, day after Christmas, get ready, let's do it all again. And I think that Christmas Day, that Christmas, this whole idea of welcoming this guy named Jesus into the world should somehow be more meaningful than that. And so as I was thinking about it, I was like, this is kind of the space before the space. This is the moment before the moment where we kind of allow ourselves to think about different things, to anticipate what it means to celebrate Jesus' birthday by maybe thinking of, about things that normally we don't even associate with, 
with Christmas. And that's what, we wanted to, that's what I wanted to do tonight because we're going to talk about some things that, that aren't normally associated with the Christmas season. Um, sometimes the Christmas season can be a great time for kind of happy, happy, joy, joy, faith. There's no bad feelings allowed at Christmas time. But if we're all honest in our humanity, we know that there's lots of kind of ambiguous feelings, some of them bad associated with Christmas. A lot of people go through tough times. So this is the space before the space. This is the time for us to prepare for Christmas Day when we hopefully can enter into an experience where we're like, yes, something is different now. And we're going we're gonna to do that tonight by taking a look at a pretty interesting story out of the book of Genesis. So I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles. If you have them, they're in, in the red Bibles are on page 16. Uh, it'll also be on the screens and it's in your fridge full. So we're going to be talking tonight about a guy named Isaac. Isaac is uh, a guy named Abram or Abraham. That's his son. We, we talked about Abram a couple weeks back and we talked about what it means to anticipate God's blessing. And then... Um, last week, Mark introduced us I, actually to Isaac's children. Anybody remember their names? Jacob and Esau. So we have uh, Isaac's father, Abram. We have Isaac's sons. And now we're going to talk about Isaac himself. Isaac is living in the promised land, like the, the, the land that God told Abram to go to. Isaac is there. So that's the setting. And we're just going to kind of talk through the verses here. A severe famine now struck the land, as had happened before in Abraham's time. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Famine comes, and God tells Abram, leave this land, go to Egypt. Um, God does not say that to Isaac. Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, lived. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you. And bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. So what, what has just happened here is that God has repeated the promise that he made to Abram, to Abraham. In other words, he said, Isaac, what I told your dad about what I'm up to, it holds true for you. Same, as, same with Abraham, same with you, Isaac. Same story, I'm still with you. It's the same plan. But then this kind of interesting kind of uh, episode happens. Listen to this. When the men who lived there, so the men who lived around Isaac, they asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca. He said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. So um, this is kind of a strange little episode. Scholars call it the wife-sister episode. It happens three times right around these, this chapter 26 in Genesis. And it's, it's, it's something that 
they're actually not sure what the significance of it is. But Abram does it, Isaac does it, and Abimelech, this guy, the king of the Philistines, he falls for it repeatedly. So it says a little bit about uh, Abimelech's gullibility, but um, we'll get to that later. Okay, she's, she's not my wife, she's my sister. But this is awesome. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Yeah. If you, let, let me put it this way. If you're wondering whether that's a loaded word, caressing, it is. <laughs> Isaac was doing a lot more than caressing Rebecca, and what Abimelech was doing watching him, I have no idea. But it's biblical. That's all I can tell. So then uh, one of these, uh, again, another one of these humorous statements then. I love this. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She's obviously your wife. Or you're really weird. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac replied, because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me. How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might easily have taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. All right, so that's the story. I want to just kind of un unpack a, a couple things there before we, before we move on. You remember the promise that God has made to, to Abraham and now Isaac. Descendants, land, etc., etc. Well, if God tells you that I'm going to bless you, but you haven't yet received that blessing, if there's a chance that you might die, if there's any kind of doubt or any kind of fear in your mind, you, you might react the same way Isaac does. He's like, I think they might kill me to get my wife. So I better just kind of make up a story because God, because I don't want to die before I see this thing happen. God told me that something's happening, but I don't think it's happened yet, so I don't want to die. So he, he basically um, tells tells this story, this wife-sister thing, to avoid getting killed, which is understandable. Now, let's want to take one step back and look at the two characters in the story. So first, let's look at Abimelech. Um, he's, we're told, the king of the Philistines. And if, you've, if you spend any time around the Bible, eventually you know that the Philistines are the enemies of the Jews, eventually. King David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. So the Philistines end up as the enemies of the Jews, but not yet. Like this, the way this is told, the Philistines are not really portrayed as a great enemy of God's people. Abimelech is, is definitely duped by the lie multiple times. So he seems like a, a you know, he's like, okay, I guess she's your sister. Um, you know, I, I don't know like what it is about his character that makes him fall for that, but he does. But the crazy thing is he actually acts with integrity. When he finds out what's going on, he's like, hey, nobody touch her. And in doing so, he protects the promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac, doesn't he? And, and just 
a brief second here, like I'm always blown away in the Bible when people who appear to be on the outside of God's family, the people who we would say, well, well, he's a Philistine or, or he's not part of God's plan. And yet this guy who is, doesn't appear to be a part of God's family, he's the one that God uses to protect Rebecca in this moment. And I always like, it's, it, I've said it before, but it's another one of these cases where God is infinitely more creative than we give him credit for. Where God will say, I'm not above or below using somebody that doesn't look like they're in, uh, part of my plan to accomplish my purposes. But that's Abimelech. And over here, uh, we have Isaac. Um, Isaac is actually a really shadowy character in Genesis. And what I mean by that is that we know a lot about his father, Abram, his father Abraham, his personality, the faithful guy, the guy that God called. He's like, I'll go, God. I'll go. There's a lot that we know about Isaac's sons, Jacob in particular, this scheming, manipulative, God-wrestling dude. But in between, relatively speaking, Isaac's kind of a pale character. Like there's just not this vivid personality that's drawn out in Genesis. But here's what we do know about him. We know he's wealthy. We know this for a few different reasons. One, we're told that when, um, that when the famine hits the land, that he's, he's told not to leave Canaan. So he stays. And when you stay in a place, you can settle and you can plant. And so Isaac stays where he's at. And we're told that he actually has a large number of animals, which is wealth in that culture, large crops, which is wealth in that culture. And, and if you read the way that the kings of the Philistines and Abimelech interact with Isaac, they interact with him as an equal. And so people, are, scholars are just able to say, like, Isaac was evidently a wealthy, wealthy man, financially secure, economically stable. And we also know, just from what we, we just read, Isaac has been told unambiguously what God's up to, right? God comes to him and says, Isaac, remember the promise? Remember the promise? Psh, psh, Isaac, it's for you too. Any doubts, Isaac? Let me tell you. Descendants, land. Descendants, land. So, Isaac, economically stable, knows exactly what God's up to in the world, knows exactly where he falls into that plan, right? And yet, when push comes to shove, he kind of tries to scheme his way out of a situation, basically tells a little lie, and when he's confronted in the lie, what does he say? I did it because what? I was afraid. That's the phrase that grabbed me. Economically stable guy, financially secure, spiritually secure, knows what God's up to in the world, knows where God is using him. And yet fear and doubt are an absolute part of Isaac's life. And so the first thing I might say tonight is that to anticipate God's protection is to anticipate that fear and doubt are always going to be a part of your life. Even when you are financially 
taken care of and spiritually down with what's going on, fear and doubt will always have a chance to creep in. But, 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 if we were honest, how many times do all of us live in a place where we are financially absolutely taken care of? And how many of us live in a place where we always know exactly what God is up to and where we, where we fall into that plan? Anybody live that place all the time? I don't. So when, if you have a man who is financially taken care of and spiritually taken care of, and yet he still fears and doubts, where does that leave us? Where does that leave me when my bank account dwindles when I'm like, God, what's going on? How much more so for us? Because I was afraid, God. Because I didn't know what you were up to or I didn't know how I was going to be taken care of. Because I was afraid, God. That's why I did it. And I want to uh, suggest to you that there's a word and a concept for that feeling. And that word is, is exile. That's a biblical word. And exile is just a word that means, that means something has changed in your world. You are no longer where you thought you were. The, 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 the way you were going to live your life is, is being taken away from you and changed for something else. I, I liken it to, to having a, a road map of the wrong city. You see, like, when everything's hunky-dory in your world, and you're in a city, you say, I, I'm here, I want to get to here. God, I, I know how to do it. I'll just follow the map. I'll just follow the map. But exile is like being in downtown Tallahassee and having a map of Atlanta. I know where I want to go, but this isn't telling me how to get here. You're in a different place in your life. That is exile. And that is where fear and doubt live. You don't know how to get where you're going. Make this decision. Make this decision. Why? Because you're afraid. So what does exile look like? What, what can it look like in our life? Well, there's a lot of different types of exile. Maybe exile for you is vocational. Maybe you had a job that you were assuming you were going to retire with. And then one day you get called into an office, you hand it a slip, and you're like, you're no longer needed. This job doesn't exist anymore. Maybe for some of you tonight, your exile is relational. You, you were in a marriage that you thought you would take to the grave. And then one day something happens, and all of a sudden, you wanted to get here, but the map you're carrying now doesn't get you there. You're in a different place. Maybe your exile is a form of, of it's health-related. You know, it's a diagnosis of, of cancer or something scary, or it's a phone call late at night that says there's been an accident, and all of a sudden, what you thought was working in the world is no longer working. You're in a different place now. Maybe uh, it's this, this idea of just a whole vision exile in, in the sense that like you thought your life was going to go this direction and all you had to do was work hard and things were going to happen, things were going to fall into place and for some reason, through no fault, nothing that you did, 
this just gets taken away and all of a sudden you're like, I don't know where my life is going anymore. I don't know what kind of solid ground there is out here. And I'm afraid. There's fear. There's doubt. There's even like cultural forms of exile. Culturally, things can change that shake a whole people. And I would suggest that there, we've experienced two in 10 years. Up until, up until uh, one day in September in 2001, it's safe to say that, that we felt safe within our borders as a people, yeah? That we never thought that like terror threat orange would be a part of our existence. And then in a few hours on one day, our entire way of living changed. And I don't know that we've recovered yet. That all of a sudden, we're not really sure how to be in the world. There's a piece of it that we just don't understand anymore. We feel vulnerable now. We haven't felt vulnerable in hundreds of years as, as, as Americans. And then, la and then the other form of, of exile was like two years ago when the economy just... And we thought we knew the way economic life in our country looked, that, that, that it was always up, you know, and to the right, or up and to the right, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, no, maybe not so much. And, and I don't know if you've seen some of the news footage that I've seen of, of cities in America that look like ghost towns, major metropolitan cities. And there's a piece of, a, piece of us that goes, I don't know how to behave in this, in this, in this mindset. This is new. This doesn't, this doesn't compute. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in, in, in that place? And, and the cool part is, is that, is that exile is a part of God's story for better uh, and for worse. So what I want to do is spend a few minutes talking about a period of exile that was very real for God's people. And I'll set it up this way, that hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, Abraham and Isaac's sons they get to the promised land. They occupy it. They possess it. They establish a kingdom, a nation. And they get a, they get a, a line of kings established. And they're kind of living life. But as they're living life, these guys called prophets start standing up and they start going, kings, sh kings, listen, listen. You're not living out the values of God. And we think that God's going to do something here pretty devastating if you don't kind of turn your act around. No one listened. And then eventually, uh, an empire rose up called the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. And they came a calling. And uh, in the book of 2 Kings, it describes uh, what exile felt like to the Jewish people. In uh, chapter 24, it says this. This is just history. During Jehoiakim's reign, the officers of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up against Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar himself arrived at the city during the siege. Then King Jehoiakim, along with the queen mother, his advisors, his commanders, and his officials, surrendered to the Babylonians. In the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. As the Lord had said beforehand, Nebuchadnezzar carried away all the treasures from the Lord's temple and the royal palace. He stripped away all the gold objects that King Solomon of Israel had placed in the temple. Now remember, the temple is the place where God's very presence lives. And yet, this 
pagan king sends his armies into the temple and they just rob it. And do you not think that the Jewish people said, something is changing right now. Oh my gosh, they just went into the temple and took away everything that was inside it. And they weren't done yet. King Nebuchadnezzar took all of Jerusalem captive, including all the commanders and the best of the soldiers, craftsmen and artisans, 10,000 in all. Only the poorest people were left in the land. And Nebuchadnezzar led King Jehoiakim away as a captive to Babylon, along with the queen mother, his wives and officials, and all Jerusalem's elite. He also exiled 7,000 of the best troops and 1,000 craftsmen and artisans, all of whom were strong and fit for war. He took them out of the land. He took them out of the land. Nothing looked right anymore. And during this time, um, some people started writing about what exile feels like. And they wrote it in, in a book uh, called Lamentations. Anybody ever read Lamentations? It's not very happy. That's why it's called Lamentations. But the writer writes about what exile felt like for the Jews. And I want to kind of ask you, like, if, if there's a, a place in your life where you're like, man, yeah, my life's out of place here. I don't know what God's up to. I want you to, I, I would ask you if any of these words, if you felt like this at all. So first he just sets up the story in, in Lamentations 1, verse 1. He says, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nation now sits alone like a widow, once the queen of all the earth. She's now a slave. And then he says this. Does it mean nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see if there's any suffering like mine, which the Lord brought on me when he erupted in fierce anger. Have you ever been in a place where you would say, look around and see if there's anybody that's suffering like I am right now? Then he says this, for all of these things I weep. Tears flow down my cheeks and no one is here to comfort me. Any who might encourage me are far away. My children have no future, for the enemy has conquered us. I, I personally will tell you now that, that I know exile. I, I don't know if you know that feeling of just, is there anybody who knows suffering like me right now? Um, but I just want to, in the interest of just kind of sharing a little bit of my story, which a lot of you don't know, um, and I don't mean any disrespect to, to, to people who would call Tallahassee home, but, but when I moved here from Chicago, like I lived, like literally lived this feeling. Um, I, I knew what life was moving towards when I lived in Chicago. I knew how to do city life. I knew how to do the urban thing, the Midwestern thing. I, I, I felt safe and secure of, of what life looked like. And then we moved down here, and all of a sudden, all of that got taken away. And the things that I enjoyed doing and, 
and the places that, the, the types of things that I enjoyed doing, they didn't exist. Or I couldn't find them. And it was 150 degrees in the summer. <laughs> but life just did not look like anything that I could recognize. And I know it sounds melodramatic, and I've suffered more than this, but, but this was probably the most devastating six months of my life. I was just like, God, I don't understand this. And I used exile a lot. God, I feel like I'm in exile. I feel like I'm in the wilderness, God. You've got to lead me out of this. I prayed, uh, God, why have you forsaken me? Again, it sounds melodramatic. I'm just being honest. And uh, eventually... God kind of worked in my heart through some, through a couple of events that were really life, uh, sort of perspective changing, where I had to really just kind of see what I was becoming if, if I didn't just kind of learn to, to change my attitude during this time. And that's another story for another time. But I want to share with you a scripture that has grown up in my life over the past two years that really, really speaks to this. Um, there was a prophet named Jeremiah who was writing during this time of exile. And when all the people who had left Jerusalem, when they got to Babylon and they, they were there, uh, Jeremiah wrote a bunch of, of words from God to these exiles. And I want to share what he wrote. In chapter 29, he writes this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes. And plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply, he says. Don't, don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. See, when like when we get into exile, what do we want to do? We want to leave exile, don't we? When we lose that job, what do we want? We want the job back. When we lose that relationship, what do we do? What, what do we want first of all and most of all? We want that relationship back. And yet God says, sometimes you go into exile and guess what? You need to plan to stay. That you need to fight that strong instinct in your life to get out of exile. And God says, hey, build a home. Plant a garden. Have children. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the place that you're living in. And I don't know about you, but but that's hard medicine to swallow sometimes. Because I would really rather just have the job back. I'd really just ha rather have the relationship. I'd really rather be back, you know, living in a, in, in a place where my maps, rec uh, uh, where they represent accurately the life that I'm trying to live in. And yet God says, no, 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 not so much sometimes. Exile is real. Exile is a part of the plan. But he doesn't even stop there. And I, and I want you to hear this. If, if you're at a place where this, this season, tonight, whatever, you would say, you know, there's exile in my life. There is loss in my life. 
Jeremiah writes this, or God says this through Jeremiah. And where you hear the word there, they, I would, I would just maybe say, take this scripture and speak it to yourself and just substitute the pronoun they for, for you. Because maybe God has to remind, remind you of this tonight. He says, listen to this message from the Lord, you nations of the world. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. The Lord who scattered his people will gather them and watch over them as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Israel from those too strong for them. They, you, will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. You, they, will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts. The abundant crops of grain, new wine, olive oil, healthy flocks and herds. Your life, their life, will be like a watered garden and all your sorrows will be gone. The young women will dance for joy, and the men, old and young, will join in the celebration. I will turn their mourning, your mourning, into joy. I will comfort them, I will comfort you, and exchange your sorrow, their sorrow, for rejoicing. The priests will enjoy abundance, and my people will feast on my good gifts, for I, the Lord, have. Does anybody wish to kind of say yes or amen to any of that? So in the deepest time of exile, in the deepest time of fear and doubt, if you were in the middle of a cloud, there's still a word that God says, you know what? I am still here. I am still If you find yourself in exile, I think what we could take away is that there's a few things to do. You know, mourn. If you're in exile, don't lie about it. Lament it. Is there any suffering like mine? Look around. I am in pain here. Something in your life is gone. Don't be afraid. Mourn it. But share it. You know, the people of God were in exile together. Call somebody into this with you. Say like, I need help. We got to go through this together. I just got to tell you how I'm hurting right now. But you also need to be willing to be at home in the middle of that exile. Sometimes you just got to go, well, don't look like we're going back to Jerusalem anytime soon. I better plant a garden. I better figure this thing out. And furthermore, that you should seek the peace and prosperity or the shalom of wherever you're at. And then lastly, that never stop believing that the God who you worshiped and loved before you went into exile, never stop believing that he's still working, even in the midst of great fear and great doubt. C.S. Lewis put it, put, it this, put it this way. He says, that comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And what, I, what I'm getting at with that quote is that when you go into exile, you want comfort. We all want comfort. But in that moment of 
desiring comfort, you need to look for the truth. And the truth works like this. If you believe that God is just a Santa Claus God who has nothing but the biggest Barbie houses for you all the time and, and nothing but the, the, uh, the most awesome you know, gaming system for you or, or you know, that's a metaphor, work it out for your life. If you believe that God only has the good things for you, that when you walk into exile, you'll be like, I either not believing in you anymore, God, or I don't know what you're up, up to. But if you seek the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that God is not, maybe he is partly a Santa Claus God, but you know what he is? He's a suffering God. He's a God that is willing to occupy a, a place on a cross and bleed and die and weep. And if you seek a suffering God, you find out that when you walk into places of exile, that suffering God, he goes right with you. And where you weep in exile, that suffering God, he weeps right along with you. And he walks beside you and he says, I am still here, even in this place. What we want to do tonight is kind of end a little bit differently. I'm going to ask Evan to come up if he's around. I'm just assuming that somebody here is probably experiencing a little bit of exile in, in their life. I mean, I'm, exile is just a common, it's a common thing for living in, in this world. And uh, he, Evan's going to play in, in just a minute. And um, over here, I put some topsoil and some seeds. And so if you, find your, if you find yourself in a place of exile tonight, the invitation for you is to just kind of take a seed and plant it and just kind of symbolically say you know what I'm at a place where right now I'd really rather seek some comfort but I think what I'll do is just try to plant a garden and just see what grows up wherever I'm at in my life in this place where I don't know what God's up to I'm going to plant a garden and I'm going to see what grows and then also what's over there is, is a bunch of Hershey's Kisses Nom, nom, nom. Yeah. <laughs> in my life, uh, this, I'm a little bit simplistic this, this way, but in my life, there's nothing that symbolizes just a little bit dose of joy than a, a good Hershey's kiss. So if you also find yourself in a place of exile tonight, your invitation is just to take, take this silly little piece of chocolate in faith that know that even in the midst of a rough place, that God is still beside you. And the promise is that he will bring you home. He will bring you out of it. He will turn your joy, he will turn your mourning into dancing sometime. So uh, I'm going to pray. Evan's going to play you are welcome to go over after I pray and, uh, and, and, and do either of those activities or none of those or one of them. And, um, and then we'll be kind of just sent out. So if you guys would, would join me in prayer. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, exile is never something that we seek. 
exile always seems to come looking for us rather than us going looking for it. Uh, and, and as much as we wish we could run away from it or get out of it, God, you tell us sometimes that it's better to just rest and prepare to stay in it because there's a blessing that might exist in the midst of not knowing what you're up to, uncertainty. So God, I pray that in, in this season, as we anticipate what it means to be protected by you, that we would also just allow that sometimes fear and doubt and exile are a part of, are just things to be dealt with in that protection. And Lord, I, I pray that if anybody here is just really, really suffering, God, that you would bring some of that relief tonight or in the next few days. And um, Lord, I pray that we would just be faithful followers of you, not afraid of exile and being willing to seek the peace and the prosperity of, of that place that we find ourselves in, God. So guide us, love us, preserve us till we can meet again uh, next week. God. Thank you for Jesus and the life that he gives us. And all God's people said, amen. Let's praise God with our hands. And uh, again, plant chocolate. See you next week.